Well, today, as you can see from the decorations around you, is the first Sunday of the Advent season. Uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with what that stands for in the Christian calendar, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, uh, it's a time of preparation where we focus in on what the season is all about, Advent being all about Christ's comings into the world, the first coming at the first Christmas, but also focusing on preparing for his second coming. And as we go through this season, I'm going to be preaching uh, messages each of these four weeks that help us to focus in on what the season is all about. But we're going to use some of the songs of the season, a different carol each week to help us focus in on the season. And so I'm preaching a series entitled Christmas Carols. And I get to start today with my favorite carol, and that is O Holy Night. And I want to just uh, take a moment to tell you a little bit about the story behind that carol, which is interesting to me. Uh, it was written actually in 1847, so it's a fairly old carol, and uh, the guy that wrote it actually wrote it at the behest of the parish priest. It was not his priest because this fellow didn't go to church, but the writer's name uh, was Placide Capot. And uh, the really odd thing was that uh, the priest of the parish there went to him and said, would you be willing to write a poem that is based on Luke chapter 2, the most popular account of Jesus' birth? And he agreed to do that. Well, the thing that made that weird was that Capot was not a Christian. He was not a churchgoer. And he was well known in that community to be quite a hell raiser. And yet, he's the guy who winds up pinning the words to O Holy Night. Well, when he had done that, he really liked the poem that he had come up with. And though his day job was as a wine merchant, you know, he was a, a decent uh, amateur poet and realized that he thought he had really written gold here. And so... He sought out his friend, uh, Adolphe Adams, and asked him if he would take this poem and put it to music. And again, kind of the, the irony of that was, Adams himself was not a Christian, was not a church-going man. And so he wrote the music that we all enjoy that goes to this song. Well, from the time they ever let other people hear the song, it just spread like kudzu. just went everywhere. People in churches loved it, and Christmas to Christmas it just spread all over. Well, the funny thing about that is... As it quickly grew in popularity, leaders in the Catholic Church discovered a little late in the game who had written the song, and that both of the men involved were not church-going men, and they were not Christians, and so they said, we must put a stop to this. We've got to eliminate this song from our liturgy and from our churches. We can't be singing songs written by non-Christian men, but by then, the song had just taken off, and it was like a fire that you couldn't put out, and so the church was unable to bring the song back, and so it began to be translated into other languages and spread around the world, uh, and so that's, that's kind of the birth of the song. It's also interesting to know that about 59 years later, uh, shortly after the turn of the century, one of the main things that was being worked on in, in terms of technology at that time was uh, different governments and inventors were working on trying to create a form of communication that did not require you to have a cable or wire from you to the next location to be able to communicate. They were trying to uh, discover and invent uh, radio as a way of communicating and the military in the U.S. were spearheading the charge in this country and, and trying to develop that. And they had created the most crude forms of radio so that they could send signals to Navy ships as to, you know, time signals to make sure everybody was in sync and, and you know, all clocks were exactly set alike. But primarily so that they could send out weather alerts. And I guess they were using Morse to do this because they weren't using voice transmissions or anything like that at that point. Radio was very crude. So they had radio receivers on the ships in the Navy at that time. Well, of course, people who were not in the military were also working at trying to come up with a workable form of, of some t type of radio communication. And there was a young man, a 33-year-old inventor who was a, a Canadian. Uh, his name was Reginald Fessenden, and he kind of did the impossible. In his own garage, he created uh, an, a very crude AM transmitter and was able to hook up a carbon microphone to that. And on Christmas Eve, 1906... He brought everything, dialed everything up that he had just invented, and he broadcast on Christmas Eve himself reading from Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. And when he had finished, he picked up his violin, and he played O Holy Night, the first song in the history of the world ever performed and broadcast over the radio was O Holy Night. And it is widely known that in Navy ships that were up and down the Atlantic coast, radio operators who were 
listening, you know, only for these basic crude signals, for the first time ever on Christmas Eve, heard the Christmas story read and heard this beautiful tune, O Holy Night. Here's your worship team doing O Holy Night. as you can see, as I shared last week, uh, as we're in this interim time, uh, Aaron Musalem is leading us in worship and doing a wonderful job. We appreciate so much that and the team with her. This song brings into focus the moment that is central to the whole Christmas celebration, and that is the events of that particular night. And, and it, it is a little bit of a challenge for us to stay focused on the main thing through the season, isn't it? I mean, just with all the other stuff that goes on during the holiday. But we remember today that holy night and what happened there. And I don't know about you, but I suspect you're like me, that we tend to romanticize what happened on that night. Uh, you know, when you think about like all the decorations that we use for Christmas, I love all of it, but there really is nothing that's, that's more perfect and fitting in terms of how we decorate for Christmas than the nativity scene. You know, I, this weekend, I was able to buy a new little nativity set that I can't wait to put up at my house. And that's really cool, and it reminds us of that night. It reminds us of what the season's all about. But even like the nativity sets that we have, wouldn't you agree that they can't begin to do justice to the reality of that night? Because, you know, everybody's just happy and, oh, how precious. It's such a wonderful, holy moment. And when you stop to think about the real story, that night didn't look like that. It just didn't. I mean, just reminding you of the basics of that story. I mean, for starters, 
Most scholars believe that Mary was probably in her late teens, is the best guess. Maybe early 20s, but probably late teens. Joseph, not much older. And she's gotten pregnant by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, that's a weird deal in and of itself. I mean, that's a whole other thought we won't chase today. And in the ninth month of her pregnancy, they have to make this long trip from Nazareth up in the mountain country of, of uh, Galilee all the way down through Samaria and into Judea, making their way to Bethlehem in the ninth month on foot and on the back of a donkey. It's Depending on the route that they took, it's between 80 and 120 miles. Now, that's just unthinkable to me. Okay, I hadn't been pregnant, but I have hung out with some pregnant people. I, I have watched the whole thing unfold. And I, I remember when my first child was born, we rode in a Honda Accord to get to the hospital, and that seemed like a little bit of tribulation and couldn't get there quickly enough. 120 miles on the back of a donkey? Nine months pregnant. Women, y'all ought, at least ought to be going, oh me, God bless her. I mean, can you imagine? And then they get there, and you know the next part in the story because of the census and all that's taking place. The town is completely overwhelmed and overcrowded with people. There's no place for them to stay. And they wind up being offered uh, a place with the animals. If you've ever been to Bethlehem, I've been there. There are just caves everywhere. Every direction you look, every, every hillside, there are these little shallow caves. And most people believe, because they were so commonly used as essentially little barns, that that's probably what they were put in, one of those somebody offered as shelter. And boy, it would have been crude shelter from some of the elements. But, I mean, have you been in a barn lately? I mean, even a conventional barn today, they're nasty. I mean, that just barely begins to describe it. They don't have floors. They have dirt for a floor. And it's generous to say dirt because if they're barns that are actively being used, it's half dirt and half manure. And if you've been in a barn lately that's actively in use, you know a barn smells like the south end of a northbound mule. Don't you know that's the case? It is a foul and filthy place. And now they're going to have to give birth to a child on the dirt floor of a filthy, stinky, manure-infested cave-slash-barn. Now, I, I think back to what it was like when my first child was born, and I get it. Ladies, you don't even have to talk down to me after the service. I know it. We, we only barely get it as men, so I'm just going to share from a man's perspective. But even as a man, that's a wild time. And yes, it's wonderful and glorious and all, but time makes that sweeter, doesn't it? I mean, we look back, and 20 years later, it's easy to go, oh, wasn't it wonderful? Just like talk to, you know, talk to the mom or the dad like 20 minutes afterwards, and it's like, holy smoke, that was wild. That was kind of scary and crazy and nasty. Just all of that, you know, a child being born, even in like the sort of sterile environment of a hospital with doctors and nurses and everybody to help out, it's still a mess. It's painful, and I mean... I was green as a gourd when, when my first was born. And even though I'd been to whatever the class is, it does not prepare you for that. And we, we went the route of the no epidural, which, again, is just evidence of being stupid and green. That, what in the world possessed us to do that? And, you know, you just picture as a dad, oh, it's going to be such a precious moment when the baby gets here and you're holding it in a blanket and it's beautiful. They do not come that way. Uh, they come out, first of all, with a head shaped like an alien, and they're covered in yogurt. And, and when they come, there's all these spare parts that come after them. It's like nobody really talked about that. It is a mess. And that's in the hospital where you've got people there who their job is to take care of the mess. And I just remember thinking, yikes. Just, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful first moment, but then you kind of want to go, why don't y'all take this down to the nursery and clean it up and bring it back when you've, you know, when you've got it wrapped in a blanket and a bow and it's there. It's just, it's just a mess. Mom's over there in terrible pain while it's all happening. And, and we had a good labor and delivery, you know. And I'm just thinking, here are these two teenagers in a cave, stench and filth. I mean, how much could they have really brought with them? They are a poor, poor couple. I mean, maybe Joseph was able to come up with some kind of little blanket or something to get on the ground, you know. Instead of a bed with stirrups and a back that adjusts, it's like, you know, why don't you lean on that rock over there? And, you know, 
he's delivering a baby. He doesn't have a doctor. He doesn't have a midwife. He doesn't even have his family there. You ought to at least have the women who've had a baby gather around and go, okay, let me tell you what's coming next. I mean, poor Joseph is as green as a gourd, and it's like, is it supposed to be like that? I mean, is this, how do you know what to expect next? And, and it's dark. It's nighttime. I mean, I remember when we had a baby, it's like Broadway spotlights on the scene, and you know, they're in a dark cave, and poor Mary, between contractions, is probably going, how does it look down there? And he's going, I don't know, it's dark. You know, he's probably got a candle or two to try and witness the birth of God's Son. I suspect that there are moments where Mary is screaming her brains out. That's what you do when you have a baby and you haven't had an epidural. That's the holy night that we sing and celebrate and remember. And the point of saying all that isn't to try and muddy up the wonder of that moment, it's to remind us of the true wonder of that. That this is how God's Son came into the world. He came into poverty. He came into darkness. He came into pain and suffering. That was the holy night we celebrate. And today, as we use this song as a way to help us remember that night, there's really two lines that I'm going to focus on that you just heard sung, and that is the the familiar words. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I don't know that there are any two words in the song that more connected with Jesus' world and the world in which we live than a weary world. We, We live in a weary world, don't we? I mean, just think about it. All the stuff that people are so weary from. Weary from worrying about how are we going to hold this family together? How are we going to hold this marriage together? Worried about the economy. Weary from worrying about our kids and their safety and parents that are aging and their health. and Weary from figuring out our personal finances and how are we going to make ends meet. Just, just weary from all this stuff. We live in a weary world. And Jesus was born into a weary and oppressed world. And yet, in all of that, there is a thrill of hope that the song speaks of that's in such sharp contrast that that night, in the midst of all this darkness and weariness and pain, there's something that, that trumps all of that, and there is this wonderful thrill of hope that amidst the pain and the darkness In the chaos of that night, there is the hope that something is being birthed here that's going to be, it's going to make all this worth it. It's going to make it better. Some of you right now, you're living in the reality of weariness and darkness and pain. And you really need the thrill of hope to be birthed in your heart. I used to hear people talk about the holidays so discouraged. You know, they'd speak of, oh, I just dread the holidays are coming. It's just such a dark time. It's such a lonely time. It's such a a pain-filled time. And I used to listen to that and think, what is your deal? How could you possibly feel that way? I mean, I'm the Christmas man. And I, I just couldn't understand how people could truly feel such weight at Christmas. I get it now. I really get it now. I don't think you can understand the the dark, painful side of Christmas until you've experienced great loss. When somebody that you've loved deeply dies or you, you know, parents get divorced or you go through a divorce or a major breakup or your kids have left or whatever, when you've experienced major life change, then it's really easy to know the dark, painful, scary side of the holidays. And It really is my hope and prayer that for some who feel Even now, here we are, December 1st, and already you're starting to feel that anxiety set in. You're starting to feel the weight of this season. and It's almost like the holidays are going to do one of two things for you. They're either going to make your life that's already good brighter and happier and more enjoyable with family and friends and all that we celebrate and gifts that we exchange and stuff, and that, that magnifies the joy or it magnifies the pain. It really does work that way, doesn't it? And my hope is that for some who feel like, oh, it's that time again, and it's just going to magnify the pain, that that will be replaced with the real thrill of hope 
the hope of Christ birthing something in you and in your situation that's going to bring a new and glorious morn that life is going to be different. It's going to be filled with hope that's centered on Christ. Well, as we think about the, the circumstances into which Jesus was born, Isaiah had prophesied that his light would dawn in darkness. Clearly, Jesus came into a dark, desperate world. But when we think about that, you really can't fully appreciate the beauty and the, the thrill and the hope of it all until you can appreciate the darkness into which he was born. And Jesus came in the midst of a time where his people had just lived in darkness for centuries. And that had sort of hit its low point in the year 586. If, if you're a student of Old Testament history, you'll know that 586 was maybe the most significant date in Old Testament history because as Israel had gone from that season when they had been for centuries captives in Egypt and then God had moved miraculously for them to escape and to take possession of a land that was their own and they had lived for centuries as a free people they had experienced times of great blessing but gradually they had lost territory tribes had disappeared as they had been conquered and finally as we move closer and closer to that faithful day in 586 there had been three invasions from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that had progressively taken more and more of Israel over and had, had deported more and more of the people. But they had still held on to Jerusalem. There was some territory that was still Jewish territory, and they still had the holy city. But in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came back for the third and final time, and he sacked what remained of the country. Even the holy city was taken, and the people were carried away in exile. They would live the remainder of their days, the next 70 years, they would live as servants, slaves, in bondage to a foreign people in a very distant land. And I just tried to picture this week, okay, if we had to bring that to a contemporary setting and say, what would that be like for us? What would the equivalent of that be like for us? This is as close as I could come. We live in a land where all we've ever known is freedom, right? I mean, I look around the room and I don't see anybody that I think grew up in a foreign land under great oppression. I mean, you may have had some hard times in your life, but if we're all Americans born in this country, you've known freedom and just, most of us, a lot of prosperity and comfort. And our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have essentially known the same stuff. But imagine if in your lifetime, China finally gets strong enough that they invade. They invade from the West and they march in, cross the west coast, and in their first invasion, they take the western third of the United States. From the Rockies westward, China occupies that. And then several years later, there's a second deeper thrust into the heart of the U.S., and they march across the Midwest, the Mississippi River, the, the deep south, so that after the second level of that invasion, all that remains are the Atlantic states, D.C. and New York are intact, but... 85 or 90% of the U.S. is now occupied territory. And then finally, 19 years into this occupation, there is a third and final thrust by the Chinese government, and they overrun those final remaining free states. And the word finally comes that D.C. and New York, those last symbols of freedom that they have fallen, and with that announcement, you know America is no more. And by the plane load and the boat load, the best and brightest and the middle class are shipped back to mainland China to live under communist rule where we'll no longer be free to exercise our faith, to gather and worship, to own Bibles, and you're going to live the remainder of your days subject to a foreign government that refuses to acknowledge God or to let you acknowledge God. How would you feel at the end of that how would you feel when the last cities have fallen and you know we're about to be deported you will spend the rest of your days in a foreign land you're going to have to learn to speak mandarin or whatever that's going to be the rest of your life you think you might feel a little blue you think christmas in china might look a little different you think every day of your life wouldn't look so black so frightening 
That's what Jeremiah and his contemporaries faced in 586. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Lamentations. If you don't know where that is, open in the middle and turn right. You'll run into the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and at the end of Jeremiah, you'll get to the little book of Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah. The name fits the book. When all of this had happened, Jeremiah and his generation, they were lamenting all that was lost. They were lamenting the judgment that God, God had brought on his people because of their disobedience. They were just lamenting the fact that life was not going to be the same. And we're going to pick up in chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 20 where he says, I will remember them. And just, we won't take the time to back up and read it. But the them he's talking about there, if you read the preceding 19 verses, he's been talking about their affliction at the hand of God. And about their wandering now, just a, a people lost and displaced. He's been talking about the bitterness and gall that have set in because of all that has transpired. And he says, I well remember these things, and my soul is downcast within me. He's just acknowledging the hurt and reality of these life-altering difficulties. And he says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Aren't you glad for that today? I mean, he is facing an awful situation. And he says, but I'm going to hold on to hope because I know this. God is compassionate and his compassion runs out. And in fact, I find it new for me every morning and I'll hold on to that. And then he just, for a moment, pauses from talking about God and he talks to God. And he says, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Don't you love watching what's happening in Isaiah's, I mean in Jeremiah's heart and mind in this passage that he starts out just acknowledging, it's bad. I remember all that's going on, and it's a rotten, dark situation. My heart aches because of that, but I haven't lost all hope. Because I remember the Lord and His compassion, and I know this, His compassion never runs out. His mercy never fails. And I'm just going to choose to remind myself of this, that the Lord is my portion, and I'm going to wait for the Lord and what he's going to do. Well, this passage sums up the darkness and the longing that the people of God had lived with for right at six centuries when Jesus was born. They had had the promises, hundreds of promises, that one day God's going to make this right. One day God's going to intervene. One day God is going to send an anointed one he will be the Son of God, and He's going to invade this dark world, and He's going to begin to set things right. His arrival will make the difference. Well, today in the time that we have left, I want to talk about what a difference it makes when Christ comes into a dark situation. That's what happened on that holy night. In the midst of all the screaming and the filth, the pain and the confusion, Jesus showed up in the middle of that, and suddenly everything began to turn. It was all worth it. Because Jesus was in the mix. And today I want to share with you three truths that I hope will bring you the thrill of hope in the midst of the pain of a, of a weary world. And so three things that a new day brings with Christ. And the first one is this. It brings you exactly what you need. Let me say that again. A day with Christ Having Christ in the equation, in a desperate situation, it brings you exactly what you need every single day. Do you believe that? Amen. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> eh, sort of. This is really the good news. When you put Jesus in the mix, it doesn't matter how bad your situation is, it guarantees this, you're going to get exactly what you need today. Now, the reason that we're not going, woohoo, that is good news, is because we understand that getting exactly what you need is oftentimes very different from getting exactly what you want. Amen? Oh, my. That is the truth. 
Because so many times I have wanted one thing and Jesus supplied something else. I mean, I'll guarantee you in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is thinking, if I could get what I want, I want the Babylonians gone. I want my house back. I want my freedom back. I want the life that I had back. And that is not what he got. But you know what he got? He got what he needed that day. And the next day he got up and he found that God's compassion was new every morning. And he got that day exactly what he needed. And let me just tell you, even though it may not be what you're looking for, it may not be what you're asking for, I'll guarantee you, if you'll let Jesus be in the mix every day this week, you'll get exactly what you need. And that part of you that tends to stress and worry, oh my goodness, how am I going to make it? What are we going to do? What if I don't? Da, 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 da. I just tell you, you can rest today in the fact you're going to get what you need today. Everything you need today. And then tomorrow when you get up, Jesus is going to be right there with everything you need for tomorrow. That takes a lot of stress off. Now, As for all that other stuff that we thought that we needed that we don't get, you know what you can do with that? You can write it off. Because if you didn't get it, you didn't need it. Isn't that the truth? You think Jesus ever comes up short and goes, Oh, man, I know Julie needed that, but I couldn't come up with it, so you're just going to have to do without today, Julie. Sorry. Mm -mm. If you didn't get it, you didn't need it. Jeremiah says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You ever just have to do that? You ever have to do what Jeremiah is doing there and just kind of talk to yourself and coach yourself up? David did this a lot. You know, David would say in the Psalms over and over, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself. Jeremiah's coaching himself up. I'm just going to remind myself, I'm going to have to remember, the Lord is my portion. Because I'm looking around, and you know Jeremiah's able to say, I don't see anybody else looking out for me. I see people taking advantage of me. I see people who despise me. I've just got to remember, while I don't see a lot in this world that looks like my portion, the Lord himself is my portion. I have to believe that what Jeremiah is calling to mind as he is rehearsing that, the Lord is my portion, as he's watching himself and all of his contemporaries being carried away from the land that they and their ancestors for so many generations have lived in as a free people, and now they're finally being removed from that land and they're losing all that freedom. I just have to think, as he's saying, the Lord is my portion, the Lord is my portion, that he is remembering the stories that he heard that the Jewish people were so familiar with, remembering when their ancestors came in and took possession of that land when they were hardly even a people, a unified people of any kind. They were just a bunch of slaves, two million of them in a foreign land. And God worked miraculously to bring them out. And they spent 40 years in the desert, 40 years in a wilderness land that could not hope to support them. They should have just completely died out and ceased to be a people. But God was in the mix. And in a land where there was no food to be had, there were no crops to be planted, there was no game to be hunted, there were two million people in the wilderness that should have just starved to death. But guess what happened? God showed up every day. And you know what God showed up with every day? What they needed for that day. Do you remember the story? Every morning they'd get up and what would they find on the ground everywhere? sounds so neat when we say manna that just sounds like some yummy dessert do you know what it was neither did they that's what the word meant by the way manna meant what is it the word manna means literally what is it which is so comical you know so so what are you having to eat what is it yeah that's what i was asking what is it that's what i'm having what is it manna it's like, well, we can call it the bread of heaven, but it didn't look like bread and it didn't look like meat. They try and describe it in the scriptures and it's like, I've never seen that. For 40 years, God provided that every day. Here's the really cool and weird thing about manna. It was fine to eat it all day long, but if you put it in a jar and tried to you know, say, well, we want to make sure we got plenty for tomorrow and for next week or for the rest of the month, each day God would make sure that it it rotted and that there were worms in it by the next morning. 
kind of a weird thing, isn't it? You know why God did that? So that the people would have to rely on Him. And because, I mean, you know our nature. God caused manna to be everywhere. You know, you walk outdoors this morning. Can you imagine if, if it was just white with manna everywhere? You know what most of us would do. We're hoarders. We're savers. We're, you know, be ready for a rainy day. We'd be out there with big sacks and the biggest containers that we own. We'd be filling up hefty garbage bags with manna. You know, I want to make sure into 2014 I've got manna. You know what you'd have by tomorrow? You'd have a sack full of worm-infested rotten food. Because God was saying, I'm not going to let you put your confidence in what you can put in a pot. You're going to have to learn, I'm your portion. I'm your provider. I am your father, and I'm a good father. And every single day of your life, I take care of you. And that's why he's saying, I'm not going to give you something that keeps even overnight. You're going to have to every day of your life wake up and discover that my compassion never runs out. My provision is daily there for you. I'm going to give you exactly what you need for today. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he's talking to Jews. And I assure you, when Jews heard Jesus saying, this is how you pray, give us today our daily bread. I assure you, a Jewish mind immediately hearkened back to 40 years in the wilderness. All you got was today's bread. And you had to get up tomorrow and collect what you were going to eat on tomorrow. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray because he's trying to teach us to live that way. That your security is not in the stock market, it's not in your savings account, it's not in your job. That your security is completely in Him, and you can trust that every day of your life, God's going to give you exactly what you need for the day. Unfortunately, wealthy people, yeah, people like us, we're at a huge disadvantage. I know we don't believe that. We'd give away a lot of what we have if we really believed that, wouldn't we? And I know we don't even like talking about this. It's like, oh, I'll get on another subject. It's the truth. We have so much more than most of the rest of the world, and it puts us at such a great disadvantage because most of us aren't really that dependent on God today. Because most of us, we know what we're going to eat for lunch when we leave here, and we know how we're going to pay for it, and we know how we're going to pay the bills for the rest of the week and for the rest of the month. And I'm not saying those are evil things. I'm glad my power bill's paid. I'm glad my mortgage is paid. I'm glad I've got some money in savings. But there is a reason why James wrote, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to become rich in faith. It's not like God's just kind of playing games with us and he's going, well, you know, I'm going to make sure Todd over here doesn't have much money, but I'm going to replace that with faith just as a gift. No, he's talking about just the, the realities of life. The truly poor people of the world who know God, they learn by experience every day God will give me what I need. No, I don't have it in the bank. No, I don't have a cupboard full of food. I, I can't explain to you what's going to take care of us next week and next month. I just know God has always been faithful, and every day he gives me what I need. The poor in the world get that because they've had to live in that reality. Most of us don't get that. We talk like we do when we go to church because it sounds spiritual, but we don't really get it here. And if you doubt what I'm saying, go give away everything that you have and see how much stress that thought causes you. We're scared to death to live without a safety net where God is our only source, aren't we? I am. It's just a, it's a difficult reality. The wonderful news is we have a safety net, and it's Jesus. And he provides exactly what we need every day. When we add Jesus to the mix, we can rest in the fact that we'll have exactly what we need the other thing, the second thing that, that a new day with Christ will bring is the hope to keep going. It's the, the thrill of hope when all you can see is dark pain and weariness in the world. It's the faith to believe in a new and glorious morn that comes because of Christ. Verse 25 of Lamentations 3 says this, The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It's been pointed out that the human body can survive for 40 days or so with no food 
can make it for roughly eight days, up to eight days with no water, uh, four to five minutes without oxygen, but it has been said only a few moments without hope. There's some truth to that. We, in the same way that we say, oh, we have to have food and we have to have water and we have to have air and shelter to survive, you can't make it without hope. I mean, you know what happens to people who lose all hope, don't you? They commit suicide. Or they live so overwhelmed by depression and anxiety that they can't get out of bed, they can't leave their homes. That's what hopelessness will do for you. I mean, hope is one of the most fundamental things that you have to have to survive. And having Jesus in the mix, no matter how dark your situation is, it brings hope into that. Now, the real problem for some of us is we've just about lost hope. And the way that happens many times is we put our hope in something other than God, and, and we've probably all done this. You know, you, you get in a relationship, and it's so good, it's so nourishing, it's so helpful, that whether you ever meant to or not, you just get to a place, you put your hope in that relationship, you put your security in that relationship. I know I can count on this person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with this person forever. I'm going to grow old with this person. And then something happens. They die, or they cheat, or they leave, or they stop loving you. How am I going to live? I mean, I'd gotten to the point I never conceived of life without this person. And you just you feel lost and hopeless without that person. A bunch of us in the room know what that feels like. It's not always in the form of a person, though. For a lot of us, and especially for men, we can do the same thing with a career. You know, we're, we so Id identify with and find our worth in what we do. You know, I am a pastor. I am a doctor. I am a whatever and it's like, you know, that's, that's me. I've spent years training to do this. I, I've, I've learned to be good at this. I know, and this is going to be what I do for the rest of my life. And then a day comes where for whatever reason you lose that job or somehow you're thrown out or disqualified. You get cut off from that thing that's been your identity and your hope, your future, your security was in that. And you realize one day, finally, I'm not going to work my way back in. You may have tried for years to get back on your career path and it ain't happening. And hope just seems to disappear at that point. Like, uh, the future I had always imagined is never going to take shape. And hope is replaced with fear and doubt and uncertainty. And there are a lot of other things that can, can cause us to do this. When we put our hope in, in different people. I mean, I'll tell you another one. Sometimes, maybe not on as grand a scale, but in a significant way, sometimes we'll put our hope in a spiritual leader in our lives. It can be in a pastor or somebody who's been a real spiritual leader to us, and they've been a source of security and direction that if, if nobody else was sane and on course, we knew that they were, and they crash and burn. They disappoint us. All of these different experiences, you know, watching your parents that have been the model of stability and security for you, and if nothing else in the world was right and normal, they were, and watching your parents divorce. How on earth? And, and if they would do that, is there anyone or anything that could be trusted in life? And that's the awful thing that, that happens. It's sort of a two-part curse. We begin to lose hope. We begin to feel just lost and directionless and hopeless. But we also find ourselves at a place that we don't feel like we can really believe in anyone or anything. We can find it very difficult to trust anyone anymore. We can find it very difficult to trust God anymore. I just, you, you get to that place and you feel like, what's the point in believing in, in anything? Because nothing really lasts. You know what I'm talking about? You ever felt that weight, that darkness? Loss can do that. Losing hope is a deadly, deadly thing leads to weariness and hopelessness where we no longer believe in or trust in anyone or anything. Hebrews 10.23 is a good 
good call for us at that point where the writer says, Let us hold firmly to the hope that we have confessed, because we can trust God to do what He has promised. You know, so many of us have let go of hope to hold on to fear and anxiety, worry and distrust. And at some point, we've just got to make up our minds. I've got to hold on to hope. I've got to, we, we have professed in better times that we believe in God. Sort of tragic what a lot of us have done. When everything's rocking along, oh, God is good, and I love Jesus, and I'm at church every day, and I give a tenth of my income, and I'm willing to do the things that I'm supposed to do to look like a good Christian until hard times come, and my income is cut by 60%, and suddenly life doesn't look like it used to anymore, and suddenly I better hold on to everything that I possibly can. I better play it safe now. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you better hold on to the hope that you professed when times were good. And accept the fact that God is faithful and He's going to do what He promised. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a dark and painful night, you've got nothing else to hold on to but hope and the promise of God. And that's enough. Something about night. Something about the dark, dark seasons that have the potential to do us in. Have you ever just heard people in in, uh, medicine talk about the physical reality of that? What darkness, what effect that has on the human body and and the spirit. That so many people who die, die at night. That the critical moment for people who are just right there on the edge is making it through the night. Can they make it to the first light of dawn? Because of the hope that seems to be birthed in the human heart when we see the dawning of a new day. I will never forget 20 years ago. My older brother and I, uh, we got married within just a few months of each other. And then we each, our wives had children within a few weeks of each other. They had the first grandkids in the family. And so we were watching our toddlers come up together. And my brother and his wife got pregnant a second time when our kids were each two years old and six months into that pregnancy Kathy my sister-in-law suddenly became critically critically ill it was was just such a weird and unforgettable weekend I had driven up to Huntsville to be with him he was going to be ordained as a deacon that night I was there for the service and she was very sick in the bed and things just took an awful turn that afternoon she spiked a fever of 106 we rushed her to the hospital and uh, it had just essentially cooked the baby at that point she she had developed a a terrible blood infection very suddenly and in a very short span of time i'm talking about a matter of hours went through the whole deal of we've lost the baby and now the doctors are saying it's very unclear whether we're going to be able to save her the mom and as we went into that night things just went down 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 went into multi-system multi-organ shutdown we got to the middle of the night, and they called the family in. They said, we are sorry, but we have done everything we can do. There is just nothing else left. Um, she's not breathing on her own. She's bleeding out. Her blood pressure has bottomed out, and she is about to die any minute. We're going to give you a chance. She's in a coma, but we're going to give you a chance just to go in and say your final goodbyes. And I just remember the overwhelming weight of that moment, walking with my brother in to see his wife for the last time. And she is... I mean, just literally bleeding out before us. Um, just didn't even look at all alive even in that moment. And uh, I remember the hopelessness and helplessness in a way of, of that moment because they're, the doctors and nurses aren't even doing anything anymore. And I, I looked at the nurse and I was like, is there not any hope? Is there not anything that you could do? I remember her just looking down and shaking her head. We, you know, had our final goodbye and we exited the room and There wasn't anything left at that point. Nothing left to do but to hope and to pray. And at that point, we just made up our minds, you know what, we are not going to give up hope. We serve the God who is able. And we have put our hope in Christ. And we need to hold firmly to the hope that we've placed in Him and just believe that He's able. We just begin to just really pray and cry out to God. It's just the middle of the night. And her numbers just got lower and lower. She was just a breath away from death. And her, her, I just didn't know a human could still be alive with her blood pressure just almost at zero. And every, every minute, you know, there's like the, it, it's fixing to be over. It's fixing to be over. And 
some minutes stretched into an hour. We continued to just wait and pray and hope. And one hour stretched into two and into three. And though she had bottomed out, she got to just a breath away from death, blood pressure as low as it could go, and still be alive. But it just sort of froze there. And for minutes and hours just lingered there with her in a coma. As we prayed and waited and hoped, the blackness of the outside began to turn into just a hint of gray. And gray turned into the white of daylight and the sun came up. And with the rising of the sun, those numbers that were almost just zero began to gradually climb. Just a little by little by little. And as a new morning dawned, things began to slowly stabilize. Now it took days for her to come out of coma and weeks for her to recover. But it is a joy to be able to tell you that as I went home to celebrate Thanksgiving this weekend, here 20 years later, I celebrated it with my brother and my sister-in-law and my nephew and his wife, a sister-in-law who's whole and healthy. I can't help but think when I see her of those almost hopeless moments where we just had to choose what are you what are you going to believe in are you going to believe that God is able and I just can't help but remember that night that was so black that with the dawning of a new morning hope began to began to grow as things began to stabilize and I'm just telling you I know the difference in that situation was Jesus when the doctors gave up and quit trying to do anything and Jesus stepped in and said I've got it some of you, the crisis that you're facing may be a physical one, but for more of us, it's not something physical. It's a relationship or a financial crisis or just overwhelming emotional distress. I'm telling you, Jesus in the mix will make all the difference. And a lot of times it won't be instant. Black will give way to just a hint of gray. And it takes a while for a new and glorious morn to dawn, but... If Jesus is in the mix, you can hold on to hope. And that, that brings us to the last thing that Jesus adds when, when he's in the mix, and that is just simply the help that you're seeking. Verse 26 of Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says, It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Some of us today need the salvation of our souls, and some of us need salvation from difficult circumstances. I just want to remind you whatever you need. It is almost unfathomable the difference that it'll make when Christ is in the equation. I, I think back to some people who were in impossibly dark situations. Like, I mean, could it have been any worse than the whole deal with Lazarus? He's dead. I mean, he's stinking dead. He's four days dead. The King James says, he stinketh. I remember as a child hearing the pastor read that. We just giggled ourselves almost under the floor at the thought of, he stinketh. He's that stinking dead in the grave, stone covering it up, until Jesus comes in the mix. And all he has to say is, Lazarus, come out. And suddenly, everything has changed. It's a new day. I think about a woman who had spent 12 years of her life slowly bleeding to death. She spent every penny she had on all the doctors of the day. Couldn't help her one bit. She just got worse. She was considered unclean all of those 12 years because of her issue of blood. She got weaker and sicker by the day and the month. And it just looked like her life was hopeless until the day that Jesus passed by. And one touch changed everything. Jesus in the equation changed it all. I think about a man who from the time he was born was crippled in a time when there was no disability income. He had been a poor, crippled beggar. The highlight of his day was being drug out to lay next to a pool where there was just this tiny little hope of a story that had been told of an angel that would stir the waters that maybe something miraculous could happen. 38 years he lived with that disability in poverty until the day that Jesus came by and said, what is it you need me to do for you? What do you want? Jesus in the equation changes everything when, when he tags in. Some of us right now feel the weight, the heaviness, the darkness of the hour. You need Jesus tagged into that situation. I, I was remembering today, and this may sound silly to some of you, will admit that as a child, I thought pro wrestling was cool. 
I can remember Saturday afternoons, we didn't have cable or anything, so the only time you could see wrestling, or wrestling as we called it in the wiregrass, was Saturday afternoons at 5 o'clock on WTVY Channel 4 in Dothan. And uh, this was not the wrestling that you see on TV today. I mean, these guys, they had to have day jobs because, I mean, it, boy, they, they were not... They were not the muscle men that we see today. But the, the shtick was pretty much the same then as what I think it is today. I hadn't watched wrestling in a lot of years, but I th- that seems to always be the same. And every Saturday, it'd be the same root kind of routine, but it would still, man, you'd just be on the edge of your seat waiting to see what happened. And basically, you know, they would build up to like the main event match, and you knew what it was going to be. It's going to be a tag team deal, two against two, and, but only two guys can be in the, in the ring at the same time. And it was always the good guys against the bad guys. You know you know how that was in wrestling. And I guess it's still that way. You know, there's the guys you're supposed to root for, and then there's the, ooh, the bad guys. And so, you know, they'd get two of the dirtiest dogs to be the bad guys in that one. And the same thing was going to unfold every time. It would be kind of back and forth, two guys in the ring, until at some point the bad guy would get a, you know, a dirty lick in on the good guy and would take him down. And you'd be like, oh, man, they need to disqualify him or whatever. And every time, somebody in the bad guy corner would distract the referee, like the manager or somebody would get his attention while the whole wrestling match is going on. And while he's looking away, oh, then they would take the gloves off. They'd really get dirty. And, you know, the second guy outside the ring would reach in. He'd get his arms pinned or something. Now, boom, boom. Now they're just working him. They're kicking in ways they're not supposed to kick. And the referee, he's over there in la-la land talking to somebody else or whatever. And everybody's like, oh, boo-boo, come on, get back in. And while all this is happening, you're watching your hero just get beat to a pulp. And now, you know, they're body slamming him. They're slinging him in the ropes and, you know, the, the clothesline takedowns. And while all this is happening, you know what's happening in the other corner. I don't even have to tell you. You know what it looks like, don't you? The, the other good guy, he's, he's reaching as far in as he can. Tag me in. Tag me in. Come on. I'm ready. Just tag me. And you know what's going to happen. It's the same every week. Poor old guy just getting beat up two on one. And he's reaching out. He's trying. But he can't reach to tag him. And now, bam, bam. They're just working him over. They're throwing him around. And every now and then, he'll get close enough. He'll almost be able to tag in. And you're like, oh, man. Just, just get him tagged in. And finally, they'll slip up. And the guy that's getting beaten to a pulp, he'll just, in like the last little ditch of, of effort, will tag out. And boy, it's on then. Because now, the one who was ready, he was hoping for this chance. He comes over the top. Boy, he's just giving clotheslines and body slams and slamming guys over his knee. It's one against two, and he's just beating the crud out of both of them. And before you know it, one, two, three, they're done. And, you know, he has put the hurt on them. Friends, that silly picture that got played out every week is a picture of a reality in our lives. We are the first guy who is just getting taken advantage of, used and abused, all the dirty stuff done to us, we are living in that reality. And Jesus is in our corner with his hand stretched out going, tag me in. I am ready. Just tag me. I can handle both of these. You can bring on all you want to. I am ready for this. But you got to tag him in. You got to let Jesus into the ring of what's going on in your life. And I want to tell you, when Jesus gets tagged in, he comes off the top of the turnbuckle. He's bringing some hurt on those who are hurting you. He is ready for your enemy and he will win. But Jesus has to be allowed in the equation on that holy night amidst A teenager screaming her brains out, the blood, the pain, the filth, the chaos and confusion. Who could have dreamed when an angel showed up and said, Oh, you are highly favored from the Lord. You know, you're about to to give birth to a child. Who could have imagined the stench, the darkness, the confusion and pain in that moment? It's like, that's not what I asked for. But in the middle of all that, Jesus showed up. He was probably about 20 inches long. That was not the Jesus we were looking for, was it? Yeah, don't you feel like that in your experience sometimes? Jesus, I need you. I need you to come in and save the day. And we don't get the version of Jesus that we thought we were going to get. I needed the wrestler off the top of the turnbuckle, Jesus. I didn't really need you as a baby. But I want to tell you, however Jesus shows up, 
he changes everything about that situation. Mary and Joseph get the 20-inch version of Jesus, and it changed everything. I mean, I can just imagine poor old Joseph over here going, well, Mary, uh, I looked in the bag, and I think we'll be able to eat tomorrow. I don't know beyond that, and I mean, we're a long way from home. I don't really know what we're going to do from here. Wait a minute, there's somebody coming in the cave. These guys don't look like they're from around here. They're all carrying something. One of them's got a box full of gold. Another one's got incense. Another one's got more. What in the world? People are bringing gifts. Big money. Our situation just changed. Why did it just change? Because a 20-inch long Jesus just showed up in the situation. He didn't come exactly like we expected. But the world began to change from the moment that he arrived. I don't know what it's going to look like when Jesus steps into your situation. There's a good chance his arrival isn't going to look like what you asked for or imagined. But I promise you he'll supply what you need. And I promise you things will change. There is a, a wonderful hope that's birthed when he arrives. The arrival of Jesus is going to mean a glorious new morning is going to dawn. Because life is different where Jesus comes. I share one final verse and then we're done. For some of you, this might need to become a memory verse, a favorite verse. Romans 13, 11, and 12 says this. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Say it with me. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You need to always remember that a dark night is always dispelled with a rising sun. A risen sun will always end a dark night. And I assure you the risen sun in your life will give birth to dawn in the middle of a dark, dark night. But you've got to be willing to reach out. You've got to be willing to tag him in and hold on to hope until he steps into your situation. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we celebrate you and your goodness, and we thank you that you are our portion, that you are committed to us, that you're committed to supplying exactly what we need today and tomorrow. Thank you that your mercy and your compassion are new for us. Help us today to put our hope and our faith in you. I want to ask you right now with heads bowed, how many of you today, just by raising your hand, would say, I am weary. I'm weary from trying to hold it together, weary from dealing with finances, relationships, kids, the issues of life. I am just a part of the weary world. Just raise your hands all over the room. I just want to pray for you. A lot of weary people in the room. Father, I pray that today for some weary hearts, for some stressed out people that you would today Give us an ability to cast our cares, our worries, and anxieties on you. That we could truly put our hope in you. And I pray, God, that you would supply exactly what's needed in each one of our lives. Lord, for some who are feeling so overwhelmed today, would you lift the load? I pray that you give joy through the holidays. Would you help us to rest in your provision? I pray for your power in our lives, for your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for caring. Would you make yourself known to each one of us? And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I want to say one final word, and that is this. We open by sharing the story behind the song, O Holy Night. And I don't want you to miss this, this one simple realization from that. Lost men penned that poem, wrote that song, men who did not know Christ. They were living proof you can know the story and not know the person. You can be well versed in the message and it do you no good. It's so easy living in the Bible Belt to go, oh yeah, I know the story of Christmas, I know the story of Easter, Jesus is the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, died on the cross, rose from the dead people can repeat the story they can write songs about the story 
They could rattle on and on about it. Knowing the story does you no good until you receive and know the person who is at the heart of the story. It is such a tragic thing that people will go through the whole Christmas celebration and go through all the motions and miss the best and most significant thing. Christ wants you to receive Him. I'm not trying to play with heads or hearts here today. It would just be the worst thing imaginable that could come out of today that that we would spend all this time focusing on and talking about Jesus and rehearsing His story and that people would walk out of here today not knowing Jesus, not having personally received Him. And it is as simple, honestly, it's as simple a transaction as that picture I just painted for you of of a wrestler in the ring who just needs to reach out and tag in a partner. Jesus wants you to tag him into the equation of your life. He wants to come in and be the Savior in your life. But you've got to be willing to reach out in prayer, simply saying, Jesus, I need you. I'm whipped. I'm lost. I'm undone without you. But I trust that you can come in and save the day, that you can save my soul, that you can be the one that gives direction and meaning to my life. I want to invite you to bow with me again for just a moment in prayer. And if today that's where you are and what you need, I simply want you from your heart to pray, Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm lost without you. I believe you died in my place. And I'm asking you to forgive my sins. To take control of my life. To save me. I want to begin living for you. Lord, I am so grateful for how you hear and answer our prayers. Thank you for your willingness to save. Thank you not only for your arrival in the world, but for your death, burial, and resurrection and what it purchased for us. And we pray these things with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.